Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I am talking to Dr. Matthew Hines about his book, Entering Transmasculinity, The Inevitability of Discourse, which was published by Intellect Books in 2016 and is being distributed by the University of Chicago Press. Entering Transmasculinity studies the intersecting and overlapping discourses that shape transmasculine identities. Dr. Matthew Heinz is Vice Provost of Graduate and Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University. He has written about a variety of topics, such as meat consumption, environmental discourse, and global constructions of gay and lesbian identities. Matthew Heinz, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you so much, Isabel. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, it was fascinating for me to learn about this series of podcasts, and I've been listening to previous editions, and it's exciting to be able to uh, talk about my work in this format. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. But before we discuss entering transmasculinity, could you tell us you know, a bit about yourself and uh, the trajectory that led you to write this book? Absolutely. Uh, let me start by acknowledging that I work at Royal Roads University on Vancouver Island in British Columbia in Canada. And so I'm working on the, on the traditional lands of the Kosapsam, Esquimalt and Lekwungen Songhees families who continue to share their knowledge about the history of the lands and their cultural practices with us today. I also uh, need to thank, before I talk a little bit about my own journey and how I came to write this book, uh, to thank all of the trans-identified individuals who share their thoughts and their activism and the very personal details of their lives online and offline. Um, without that outreach, um, I wouldn't have been able to write a book <laughs> uh, of that nature. I would especially like to thank members of the Vancouver Island trans community who generously supported me during my own transition and who also participated in community-based research projects. So how did I come to write this particular book? Uh, originally, I'm from Germany. And after I completed high school, I went to the United States, really on a bit of a you know young adult exploratory mission. I wanted to improve my oral English and really wasn't quite sure where I was going to go. Uh, I ended up studying print journalism and uh, dramatic literature. I worked professionally as a reporter, an editor, and a communication specialist for several years before I returned to university to pursue a doctorate in communication studies. And once I shifted to studying interpersonal and intercultural communication, I began to research the experiences of uh, mostly gay and lesbian identified individuals, and in particular, 
the role that language plays in self-identification. And then as the 90s came along and the World Wide Web came along, uh, how those discourses play out online. So fast forward a little bit, um, as I began to understand myself as a transgender person, which was quite late, I was in my 40s, I found myself really immersed in the discourses of all things transgender, especially as they pertained to trans masculinity. So it was the combination of my personal experience, uh, my continued academic interest in the study of language, culture, and identity that led me to studying those discourses in depth. And I was reading one of my scholarly papers at the Canadian Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences in 2013, when I was approached by representatives of intellect books. And they explored my interest in writing a book on a topic. And several years later, it was a, it was a book. Wonderful. So uh, I always like to ask people about book covers because I'm really fascinated by them. But you did me a favor. You actually opened the book by discussing its cover. I was so excited when I read that. <laughs> I would like to know why you decided to use this particular image. And, and while folks are not able to see it right now, so could you please describe it to our listeners and tell us about the artist who created it? It's hard to just, it's hard to describe it. So it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the background. Um, the photograph that illustrates the cover was taken by a Mexican-Canadian uh, photographer. His name is Damien Siqueiros, and he now lives in Montreal. And I met him at a conference that exhibited some of his work um, at the time the work that he exhibited was a visual portrayal of gender. And I loved his work right away. Um, so years later, <laughs> when I was asked to think of ideas for the cover, I immediately thought, oh, his work would be fantastic. And he agreed to provide a cover photo from his photo series, Transformation. That particular series references painters from the Renaissance and Baroque periods. and um, so if you imagine sort of a take on uh, Michelangelo, <laughs> but it presents dancers in movement. So it's not a series about trans people. It's about foregrounding the social, cultural and historical construction of gender. Uh, Damien has his work has gained international exposure and recognition in recent years. And I have written about his work in uh, in other publications because he has such a rich cultural and historical grounding to the way he approaches photography and the way he complicates gender. So it's not just about, you know, transgender individuals. It's more about how do we think about gender when we see visual portrayals of people. Yes, his his work is really amazing. And I, I didn't know it, uh, of his work until I, I read your book. So thank you. <laughs> but let's begin the discussion of your book by breaking down its title and defining some of the terminology. You uh, mentioned here uh, almost 30 different words that, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, people who are assigned the female sex at birth who do not perceive the sex designation to be an appropriate representation of their gender and, or sex, 
use to identify themselves. So considering that there are so many uh, different words, how are you using transmasculinity, transmasculine here, and why did you decide to use this particular term? And that, of course, is a very good question. <laughs> uh, so I define transmasculinity in the context of this particular book as masculinity that is experienced, performed, and presented by humans, people who were assigned to the female sex at birth, but who identify as male or masculine or masculine of center or any of the you know other 27 terms <laughs> that um, you uh, read off. Why did I decide to use that term? Um, I use that term because in part it resonates strongly with me. Um, if I have to describe myself in gendered language, that's the term I use. But I also use it because I think it illustrates um, the tension between masculinity and transmasculinity. And mm -hmm. for individuals who are trying to find their place um, in a language that signifies that they, they're not aligned with the female sex designation. Those are the two discourses they can access. And so I find it uh, both personally and you know, conceptually appealing as a container. It's not perfect. No container is perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you were talking a little bit about this earlier, but uh, tell us a bit more about you know, some of the considerations that people who study gender and sexuality nonconformance need to you know, take into consideration or contend with in terms of language choices. Uh, yes, um, there, there is, as I think we all know, perhaps, uh, there's no perfect language, right? Mm -hmm. uh, language always changes and it's always contextual. And that's not particular to gender, but the language we use both in English and in other linguistic contexts has seen much rapid change when it comes to gender in the last decade. So I think as a scholar, you always have to define how and why you use certain terms. But you must also give up any claim to getting it right or to offering definitive labels. Like I know that the language I used in this book, which came out in 2016, is already dated. Um, some of the literature that the book cites is would be considered very dated now in terms of the way um, we think and write about gender. And I also know that five to 10 years from now, likely many of those conventions will have changed again. And so I think the best you can do as a scholar is to be specific. Like I'm using these terms out of these contexts for these and these reasons. And uh, I'm open to the idea that, you know, not everybody will agree with that language use. And also that even if I think I'm using the most current terms, the terms most currently endorsed or accepted by members of the communities themselves. That's not a universal endorsement. Well, thank you for that. That's something I'm also, you know, trying to uh, deal with as I'm writing my own work. But um, so tell us what do you mean by, you know, I'm talking again uh, about the title. What do you mean uh, by an in inevitability of entering discourses? Why and how are these discourses inevitable? Well, even as you know, you and I have this conversation, 
um, we have no choice, right? We have to use a language. And by convention, we use English, which I think is probably not our first language. It's not mine. Uh, I don't know if it's your first language or not. Definitely not. <laughs> and so so we're using a language, right, that uh, is, is not our first, our innate sort of language, um, which we had to ac acquire. And when we talk about controversial and complex topics such as, you know, gender identity and um, sexual orientation, we, we are rest restricted to using the language that we both think one best reflects our idea, but also one that is not offensive, that does not um, exclude people, um, that is accessible to people. And so we are therefore uh, inevitably restrained to using what is currently uh, used in the discourse. Um, James Baldwin said that the root function of language is to control the universe by describing it. And we can't get away from that, right? <laughs> so when I go back to Germany, for example, um, much of the international transgender movement, if you will, um, has taken place at a time when that I spent in the United States and Canada. So my own vocabulary in German um, is quite rusty. And so I have to learn it. <laughs> Uh, to learn how I can talk about my own gender identity in my, you know, first language. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not natural to me. Um, so I have to kind of go back. I have to talk to people who are active in trans communities and who generate some of the literature, not just the scholarly the, the literature, but, you know, how do trans people talk about being trans in German, in Germany now? And I don't know that naturally. I have to learn it, right? So I think that's part of where this inevitability comes from. Um, even though there is international exchange, much of it taking place in the vehicle of the English language about trans movement and trans identities, we don't use the terms in the same way. Like they will always be affected by the linguistic, social and cultural and historical context in which I say those words. So if I say transgender in English in a podcast with you now, it has a certain meaning, but it won't have the exactly same meaning, right? If you translate it, say, into Spanish or I translate it into German and I say it in German, it will have a slightly different connotation, right? So it's always tricky. <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, I was I, I caught myself I was sort of waiting for them as I as as I went through the chapters, is that you close your chapters with these personal interventions in the form of performative pieces. Tell us about your decision to include those, and what role do you see them playing in your book? Uh, thank you for for asking and for <laughs> and for enjoying those. Um, I come to writing from a variety of perspectives. So on one hand, I am a trained print journalist. And as such, I learned to differentiate my voices in terms of whether I was writing an opinion in a, uh, or editorial piece or whether I was writing a objective, however 
much that is possible, news story. I also write poetry and performative writing. And then as a scholar, I try to combine different perspectives and hopefully reflect emerging knowledge across different disciplines by different writers. So when I, my intention in writing the book was not to make an argument as such, but to simply try to capture a slice of the many discourses on transmasculinity that exist online. And that does not put my person, my positionality into the text. So I wanted to experiment with including my positionality in the form of these performative pieces. And I was super happy that my publisher was open to that because it's not a common format, uh, but I, I love being able to, to show my authorial position adjacent to, but not within the analysis of a discourse, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing one of them with our listeners? And I think the one that perhaps most closely relates to the scholarly intent of the book is called More Images for Trans Men. I was not looking for images. They came looking for me. As my keyword search, trans man, led to a sliding panel of transmasculine portrait shots taking over my screen, my vision, my imagination. They came looking down on me. Visions of myself, reduced to the smallest addressable element in an all points addressable display, without captured me as a screen struck subject to their gaze. And although electronically connected, I felt no kinship to these images, as distant from me as the normative glossy family portraits that come with commercial photo frames. Yet they seemed to belong, tattooed, well-muscled, athletic, confident, bare-chested often, to each other. Pixelated, I declined to see more images for trans men. I was not looking for definitions. They came to look me up. My keyword search, trans guy, yielded urban wiki medical legal dictionary entries, defining my 125 pound human presence in policy vocabulary, the language of anti-discrimination advocacy and testosterone therapy regimens. They came to lock me up. Call me trans naive for not recognizing myself amidst the revolving images of Mr. Limpy and the Sailor Softpack alerts. Only one week left to grab July's issue of Transman magazine and the occasional FTM bodybuilding competition designed to repatriate myself into a nation of trans. Naturalization by conferencing, selfies, legitimate identification cards, tattoos inking our need to belong, original plumbing optional. We are a culture now. I didn't know that wanting to be me would require so many online purchases. Commodified but not comforted, I visit one of the web's most trusted and visited resources on trans health and fitness because there is no tangible proof of my existence. So I trust web browsers to generate proof that this figment of my imagination can see its shadow. 
rely on cultural studies to let me reclaim my monstrous body and engage enlightenment musings. I am trans because I think I am, because I am trans is. Reduced at absurdum in this fashion, my keywords create identity parameters shaping not just my future, but the consciousness of trans men, trans masculine, trans guys, trans identified, following my digital trail. The simple state of being, not a viable mode of digital existence. My search requires frequent updates. Consumer tracking channels my vision. My vision quest as binders, once discreetly delivered by obscure mail order outfits, suddenly pop up on my Amazon profile. Like an uninvented solicitor at the house door during dinner, the image of a 20-something handsome boy sporting a binder breaks into my train of thought. Imagine that. Imagine me, seemingly, seeking youth beauty strength and unlimited purchasing power. My browser generates 10 handsome men who were actually born women with virtual certainty I can only confirm my net existence. Thank you for the chance to read that. Thank you so much for sharing it. It's it's really beautiful, and as you mentioned, it's it's. I, I really enjoy your ch uh, how you change the voice, right, from a uh, more detached uh, analyzer to bringing yourself to the book. Uh, that was uh, I really enjoyed that part. But one another thing that I wanted to uh, you to tell us about is the variety of sources that you use here, right? It goes from YouTube videos to academic texts, from counseling literature, educational pamphlets to popular media and even blogs. So I'm really interested and curious about the methodology that you use to select and process your sources. <laughs> and that, of course, is a very good academic question. <laughs> um, and I, I cannot and, and do not claim that I used a rigorous, exhaustive, academically recognized and established search paradigm to arrive at those sources. Mm. I wanted to capture, in many ways, the experience that so many of us have as we try to come to make sense of our lives in a transmasculine context. And we don't sit down and establish a search parameter <laughs> for finding ourselves and, and where we fit in, right? So we, we live in this discourse where we read books and we see a magazine cover at the store and we do go online and we search. And I wanted therefore to cast a wide net. It wasn't entirely anti-methodological. Uh, so I tried to, I looked at the literature in terms of, you know, what are the main media, some of the main platforms. Uh, I looked at, uh, I, I read a lot of books. Um, I watched a lot of films. I excluded certain bodies of uh, discursive manifestations. So I did not look at visual art. I did not, unless it was included on a website. I did not look at poetry. I did not look at theater. And I tried to essentially be as specific as I could to let the reader retrace the, the trails I pursued in the effort to capture discourse available in that time period. 2014 to 2015, really. 
<clears throat> so in, in the first chapter, you um, note that the initial discursive immersion, right, that many transmasculine individuals experience remains in a medicalized and pathologized concepts. Can you explain that? This goes back to the inevitability of discourse a Mm -hmm. a little bit, right? Um, For example, if I find myself coming to terms with, or I realize that I would be most comfortable um, labeling myself as a transgender person, some of the questions that arise are, so what do I do with that? (laughs) Do I do anything with it? Uh, Do I feel a need to, um, as we describe the process in English, to either socially and or physically, or sometimes we say socially and or medically transition? And if I Google transition, or if I talk to people, so I think I'm trans, what do I do, (laughs) basically? Um, You will end up finding how-to how guides, essentially, often generated by community organizations or peer mentors, peer guides, but also by government agencies or um, medical outlets. And you will be channeled somewhat to a medical intervention or a medical way of thinking about yourself. And... While various global medical and psychological bodies and organizations, you know, have shifted somewhat to the construction of gender identity as, and particularly transgender identity as being psychologically ill, the systems are set up in a way that, for example, to access hormone therapy, even the word, right, hormone therapy, so you're receiving Mm -hmm. therapy for Uh, something that is not quite right with you. If you need the hormone therapy to be able to present in a way that is more congruent with the way you think of yourself or the way others should interact with you, then you are accessing the discursive area of treatment, therapy, medication, which makes you a patient in a sense, right? So that's one of the one of the ways uh, in which you are entering now a discourse of um, medicine and thereby sickness and illness because we need medicine when we're ill. So it's very hard to walk those lines as a trans person without thinking of yourself as a patient. And of course, there are very, very physical uh, and financial. Uh, and treatment access realities that are tied in uh, to that because in countries in which access to such therapy or treatment is gated by insurance coverage, which requires the diagnosis of a medical condition to be able to access those resources, then you have to, you, you literally have to enter that discourse and conceive of yourself as a patient and somebody needing help in order to acquire the means to present or live in a way that is makes life more sustainable for you. Mm-hmm. 
So, and the, the following chapter, you examine uh, mediated constructions of abnormality in the context of a heightened media visibility. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the, as with perhaps most numerical minority experiences, right? It's very, you have to walk that on that, on that tightrope between wanting to be seen and wanting to be understood when your experience is not one that is easily seen or understood. At the same time, you want to be seen as just one of, you know, the seven billion people on the planet and calling attention to that tension between we are all a community of humans. We all have gender identities, whether we want them or not. And my gender identity isn't represented by what I see on the screen or the way people talk to me at work or the way our policy works or the way our washrooms are laid out. Uh, they require contradictory impulses, right? And, and contradictory rhetorical strategies. And so, it's the tension I wanted to look at because that's what I saw online. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yes, yes. So, but uh, some of the tropes that you analyze in this chapter, right, of these constructions or assumptions of difference are the trapped in the wrong body trope, the trope of the monster or freak, and the trope of uniqueness. I'd like to know how these tropes are articulated in external and internal discourses. And I know we can complicate or problematize this, <laughs> but uh, by external, I mean media, like outside representations. And by internal, I'm talking about how transmasculine individuals talk about themselves. Right. So we can start with the trapped in the wrong body trope, which, uh, as you know, gender scholars have written about for decades now. And trans people who themselves embraced that trope at a time when other tropes were not available or other ways of articulating what you were feeling were not available or did not get you the means to access to the resources you needed. Uh, that has shifted particularly in an English context um, and in a U.S. and Canadian context. It's not absent. Uh, some people still describe their experience that way. And we have to respect that. Um, but generally speaking, there has been a shift in terms of we see more trans-identified people embracing a discourse of, you know, I am who I am, I have one body, and it's not that I'm somehow trapped in this body, but my body manifestation doesn't match the way I think about myself and therefore the way others should interact with me. The trope of the monster or freak is tapped into differently depending on the political and rhetorical motives of the person generating the discourse. So in the United States context, we see a 
frequent enactment of the monster and the freak trope when it comes to, for example, the right of transgender people to access a washroom that aligns with their gender identity, right? So in discourses that oppose that ability, we see a frequent enactment of that monster freak trope. Uh, we don't see it, fortunately, much anymore in discourse generated by trans people about themselves. In terms of the uh, trope of uniqueness, that to me is one of the more interesting tropes right now, because you can look at the, the unicorn, right? Um, quite literally the sort of plastic white unicorn with the rainbow <laughs> unicorn in the main, which is ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's everywhere. And you can see it often as an emoji or uh, as an icon or a logo on trans and gender diverse website blogs but it's also migrated outwards into the general discourse like you can see it at kids birthday parties where gender identity you know is not the focus uh you can see it at, you know party favors you can, i think our you know iphone now comes with 20 different unicorn emojis. <laughs> so the uniqueness trope has certainly migrated. There are costs to endorsing the uniqueness trope. Um, it's helpful in a context in which trans people are still disempowered, uh, experience violence, experience disproportionately, um, racism and discrimination, particularly uh, in trans female and trans women's communities and particularly in communities of color. So uh, being able to embrace that, that what makes you special and what differentiates you from the majority experience is, is helpful and empowering in that context. But if mm -hmm. you take it too far, and particularly if you commodify that expression of uniqueness and you use it in a context in which you are actually privileged, then it uses its political value and some of its legitimacy. Because mm -hmm. then you end up perpetuating this sort of watered down, we are all unique right, and you obscure the very real structural inequalities that are in place in a society. So we were talking about the various tropes that are visible in a discourse, uh, particularly the online discourse. And one of the complexities uh, when we look at these tropes is that we could talk about transmasculinity, but transmasculinity is different right it's differently experienced depending on your how intersectionalities affect you so for example in a u.s context black trans men often talk about the somewhat unexpected cons consequences 
of transitioning into the subject positionality of being a black man in the United States today. That is a very different experience than me as a white German immigrant academic transitioning in the safety and comfort of a university appointment. And yet, all of the individuals living in Canada and the United States are affected by the prevailing tropes of masculinity and transmasculinity. And so these tensions are tensions you can find online if you look. The discourse online is actually amazingly diverse. Um, many, many communities uh, that are not represented in majority discourses have online visibility. Uh, they use it to organize politically. They use it to give expression to their life experiences and to build communities. And yet, if you don't dig deep enough, you might not, you will not see that diversity of transmasculine experiences. You will easily see something like 10 handsome men that, you know, were women at birth. Uh, for a while, we saw a predominance, uh, particularly in the trans masculine portrayals of, you know, young, white, physically fit trans men. And that is an identification that is positive for a particular segment of the transmasculine portion, uh, sorry, transmasculine population, but certainly not all transmasculine identified individuals, right? So it's finding yourself and the tensions between that and masculinity in general, like the whole notion of masculinity is undergoing rapid change. It's being contested in, in many ways. And how to find who you are and who you can be and how you should or shouldn't speak about masculinity in and of itself. Those are all really hard questions for transmasculine identified individuals. I think most recently, and since certainly since um, the book has been published, we've seen increasing visibility for individuals who identify as non-binary or as agender uh, or um, gender diverse and gender non-conforming. And they give expressions to more, uh, less of a rigid gender identity designation that also reaches out into transmasculine identifications. So I think the discourse has changed quite a bit again in uh, the last four or five years. And it will be interesting to see how the tropes that were so predominant four or five years ago manifest now in a different context. Mm -hmm. 
So one thing that you uh, discussed that I also found really interesting is this idea of a rhetorical burden, right, of a discourse that uh, simultaneously needs to make space for a, a, a lot of different things. Yes. It needs to make space for a positive, confident, transmasculine manifestations, but it also needs to include the social justice agenda, as you noted, of people who are experiencing other markers of difference in social hierarchies, while also accepting the legitimacy of trans men for whom, as you, as you note, a full physical transition is literally of vital significance. So I would like to know how are essentialist and constructionist discourses negotiated in this process? <laughs> uh, I would too. <laughs> um, it's easier to talk about the, the rhetorical burden, right? Because, mm -hmm. yes, I mean, we have to create language and we have to create visual spaces and online spaces and imaginary communities that allow for the range of expressions. Mm -hmm. We how we do that without further splintering and segregating ourselves into distinct, you know, sub, 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 subgroups uh, is important to figure out. And it's something we have to do collectively. Let me think of another way of, uh, <laughs> of, word, of wording that. So for example, on one hand, right, it makes sense to critique the notion that you have to enter a, a medical pathologizing discourse in order to be trans. But on the other hand, that critique has to be tempered by the fact that we know that for some trans identified people, access to feminizing or masculinizing surgeries is absolutely necessary for sheer survival. Mm -hmm. So the discourse has to be broad enough to allow that range of expressions. So moving away from absolutes and recognizing the diversity within our own communities and the diversity within the communities that are not visible. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and in that note, another, uh, I guess, uh, Difficult question. <laughs> what would be the different consequences and outcomes of conceptualizing transmasculinity as being and as becoming? Because that, I think, that's a theme in the book. Right, and uh, you're absolutely right. And so, the last chapter in the book tries to talk about um, that theme. Right. So, mm -hmm. the minute I say in writing or in oral communication or in a video or in a blog post that I am transmasculine, I have inscribed myself into presence in a very real way. I have used those words to describe myself. So I've labeled myself, I've created an identity in essence, right? And so I describe my being. But my being, and this actually applies to you know anyone, like any gender identity, is always subject to the way that gender is being constructed. And so the way one thinks about being a man or a woman today, February 14th, 2020, will differ slightly from the way we collectively will think about what it means to be a man or a woman, say two years from now. So there's a temporal aspect to that identification. 
The other aspect is that all of us are aging and with aging, we change. We change our perspective on our life, which includes our gender identities. Our roles change. And with that, our gendered role expectations change. So the becoming is always an aspect of that as well. And the minute that we cement an identity into being and we say, this is it, this is what being a trans guy means to me. And, you know, I'm not expecting any changes. That position has to be held simultaneously with the acknowledgement that, yes, what it means to be a trans guy today will not be what it means to be a trans guy, if that's even the language that we use three or four years from now. It's difficult. It's difficult because we make at a political level, we make policy decisions about absolutes, about things that we perceive to be true. And so always acknowledging that we have to allow for the fact that what we perceive to be true will change slightly over time is, is difficult. And I know it's a very abstract argument, and I've tried to, you know, bring it to life by showing all these different examples that we can find in online discourse where people say, you know, I am, for example, um, I'm trying to reconcile my faith with my gender identity because it, there's no natural bridge there and I have to make that bridge. So maybe there's room for me to create the positionality to be a trans-identified Anglican or Catholic or Muslim but maybe that's not so, right? So those are the tensions uh, between being and becoming. Um, that I'm, yeah. you know, that I was trying to identify uh, to show that there are many ways of thinking about this. So that identifying as trans doesn't necessarily mean that you now have to step out of your other identities. Um, there's probably a way, and probably you're not the first one and not the only one. And you can find spaces, discursive spaces online that you can access and that will help an individual in terms of coming to terms with and building on that, but also will help others because you immediately join that discourse, right? So you make contributions. So even this podcast makes a small contribution, right? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so I like because, well, this is the new books network and we all, uh, at least I think, love books. I wanted to conclude our interview with uh, three questions about books. So was there any particular book that inspired or informed uh, entering transmasculinity? There wasn't a particular book uh, or that inspired or informed entrance transmasculinity but it was a confluence of influences that led me to approach the subject matter and that's on one hand the the now quite still rapidly growing uh, literature of all the trans people who have written and you know created films and created a discourse of being trans um, and they are 
honestly, like too many to mention at this point, which is lovely. Like, you know, yeah. 30 years ago, uh, the, the canon, if you wish, was quite limited. And now really I challenge anyone to come up with, you know, an exhaustive um, list of trans memoirs because they are growing exponentially and not just in an English language context, which is significant. On the other hand, um, I've always, you know, philosophically speaking, I've always been intrigued by writers, whether they are scholars or prose writers, who are able to capture that ability to see two different kinds of reality at the same time. So I was um, able to include an excerpt from writing by uh, Franz Kafka because I think he's one of those writers who does that very well who can acknowledge that there are two a minimum of two ways of looking at yourself at all times and life is richer and has more possibilities if we can capture both ways but it's really hard <laughs> it, it's hard right it's it's um, it requires a complexity in everyday interactions that you could get lost in and so it's important to kind of you know be able to bring that back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading that passage as well. So while you were researching and writing your book, uh, did you come across any story or a subject or a character that you wish someone else would write about because you couldn't like fit it into this particular book project? <laughs> oh, there's so many things I couldn't <laughs> fit in, right? Uh, speaking of limitations. There always is. But, right? but it would be... There are many scholars who have written about trans women's experiences and trans femininity to a degree, but I would love to see uh, somebody who writes from a trans feminine experience write about sort of a matching piece, right, about the trans feminine discourse. And the interesting thing is it, it actually doesn't quite work to talk about it in those terms because Transmasculinity has emerged as a concept that doesn't have an exact match in transfemininity, mm. if that makes sense. The concept of transfemininity exists, but it doesn't quite have the same weight and positioning in trans women's discourse as transmasculinity does within a sort of trans men's experiences. So I would be, I would love to see somebody explore that. That, yes, that's, uh, I would love to read that as well. <laughs> and what are you working on next? What's your next project? So I started working on a project that looks at the role of memory in gender identity. And not unlike this book, uh, I, I am looking into online and print discourses. Um, I'm also interviewing a number of trans-identified people. And so I'm not interested in, you know, finding out how old were you when you first identified with a sex or gender different from the sex assigned to you at birth. So it's not an empirical quest into, you know, the sort of the the origin time, but it's 
it's more of an exploration into how our sense of gender and what role it plays in our lives changes over time and how in retrospect our gender histories, what do they feel like? What do they look like? Because there hasn't been much work done on that aspect. So when you think of gender in general, right, say if you take the experience of the a cisgender woman, not having to grapple with the complexities of not aligning with the sex assigned to you. Still, your experience of being a woman changes over time as you may or may not become a mother or a stepmother or, you know, you, you may be a daughter, you may be a grandmother, you, are, you may be a, a wife to another woman or you might be a wife to a husband. Like, all of those roles will shift and change over time and then you're also aging. So your whole perspective on what it means to be alive actually changes. And so we haven't taken those very complicated life narratives and looked at what happens to trans people. Usually when we look at trans memoirs and trans studies, we look at either the point of transition or the point of self-identification or the point of... um, sort of public declaration, like outing or self-outing or being outed. And and it becomes a point in time, right? And we are very much focused on that transition period. So what happens um, until you arrive at X? But we don't really arrive at X ever because we only arrive right at a certain point and then we keep on changing. Our cells keep on changing. Our bodies keep on changing. So I'm really interested in looking at that relationship between memory, gender, and identity. And I definitely want to read that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matthew, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And we finally made it. We had some uh, technical problems in the past, but we finally made it. So thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's a lovely forum. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'd like to also thank the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Memphis, and especially my friend, Dr. Robbie Bird, for letting me once again use their podcasting studio to record this. I just spoke to Matthew Hines about his book, Entering Transmasculinity, The Inevitability of Discourse, published by Intellect Books in 2016 and distributed by the University of Chicago Press. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.